As soon as I take it off, it'll rain more. When I was riding, I rode my motorcycle up here and uh, it was interesting. It started to rain, so I put my rain jacket on. And as soon as I did that, it stopped raining. That happened several times and I'm not sure what that meant, if anything, but it was interesting in any case. So it's good to be with you. First time I've uh, had church in a park. It's a good experience. It's great to sit here or stand here with you. Now, why are you here? Uh, you could be, there's a, a sandlot volleyball uh, place to play back there. There's exercise equipment or I've seen people kayaking, canoeing. There's all kinds of things for you to do. There's people hiking, walking around here, all kinds of things to do. But you've chosen uh, to meet here in the park for the worship of our Lord. Can you hear me in the back? Am I, am I okay? Okay. You've chosen to meet here in the park for the purpose of worship, for the purpose of singing in worship, for the purpose of uh, 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 listening to the word and praying together and being edified. I like to say that the uh, purpose of our ministry, Five Stone Church, is just to edify, protect, encourage, and support the local church. Uh, uh, I work with many local churches in the States, and we're planting a church in Peru. We'll get more into that after the worship service today. Uh, but there's a purpose the church has beyond just gathering together and hanging out together, spending time together and having fun together. There's a purpose that the Lord is the head of the church. Colossians 1.18 says that the, the church is uh, headed by Jesus Christ himself. He's the head of the church. So what's the rest of us? If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior today, you're a participant in what is known as the body of Christ. It's a metaphor describing what the church is about. Uh, you can see this, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're not going to spend the bulk of our time there. The bulk of our time will be in Hebrews chapters 5 and 6. But for the purpose of illustration uh, of how the Lord has constructed his church, the metaphor is a body. We're not to be jealous of one another. We're not to be saying, because I'm not a preacher, then I'm not a part of the body or I'm not important. Every part of the body is important. As the Lord, through Paul, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the hand can't say that if I'm not uh, a different part of the body, I'm not a part of the body. The foot, the foot shouldn't say because I'm not a hand, I, I don't belong to the body. It's not a less part of the body. The ear should not say, the ear, if the ear should say because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. Every part of the body is important. Whatever your gifting is, whatever your talent is that the Lord has given you, you're a part of the body of Christ. And you're to exercise your gifting in a, in a way that brings honor to him and, and brings, brings pleasure to the Lord. I want to read to you a list of the way to do body life. It's in love. The motivator should be love. Love is mentioned 18 times in, this, in the uh, New Testament, 18 times of how we are to treat one another. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians in several places. But I, I chase this around the body a little bit, uh, around the Bible a little bit, about the one another's, what we are to do for one another in Christ. Now, this is a hard list to do perfectly. You can't do it perfectly. But as we walk with Christ, we learn how to live together in peace and harmony. I'm going to read this list. There's 33 items in the list about how we're to treat one another, how we're to live in harmony with one another, with Christ as the head of the church. So I'm just going to read through these. As I said, there's 18 references in the New Testaments of, of loving one another. Well, how do you do that? Well, here's some descriptions out of the New Testament. Accept one another. Uh, be devoted to one another. Give preference to one another. Care for one another. 
suffer with one another, rejoice with one another, be hospitable to one another, encourage one another, build up one another, be kind to one another, be compassionate or tender-hearted to one another, forgive one another, greet one another, stir up one another. Are we tired yet? Stir up one another to love and to good works. Tolerate one another. We're supposed to love one another and also tolerate one another. That's a part of love. Someone who's quite different from you, someone who's quite different from me, maybe you don't have this warm, fuzzy feeling about that person, and that's completely normal. But we tolerate one another and patient with one another. God made that person. He's in the image of God. We are to love that person. Comfort one another. Bear with one another. Pray with one another. Pray for one another. Serve one another. Wait for one another. Instruct or admonish or warn one another. Confess your sins to one another. Serve one another. Live in peace with one another. Seek after the good of another. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Use your spiritual gifts to serve one another. Be humble toward one another. Carry one another's burdens. Bear with the failings of one another. Live in harmony with one another. And be concerned with one another and for one another. That's quite a list. I was talking with a young man a few years ago who had thrown himself into ministry. He wasn't in vocational ministry. He wasn't on staff, but he had, he had been a Christian for a while. He'd known the Lord for a while as a younger man, and he was becoming more intensive and more devoted to serving Christ. The problem was when he started doing these things more intentionally, the list I just read to you, he got hurt. He made himself vulnerable to people. He got hurt. And he was wounded and wondering if he should continue. And I said to him, you know, you've put yourself in the crucible. When you do these things and you throw yourself into the service of the Lord Jesus Christ with his people, you put yourself in a crucible where people can criticize or look at your weaknesses or not like what you've said to them. If you admonish someone or warn that person, they might not like it. You might not want to forgive someone who has offended or hurt you. You may not feel like you want to tolerate that person who is perhaps more difficult for you. You've put yourself in the crucible, and what that means is that whatever happens to you, whatever the Lord allows or causes in your life as you do these things for one another in the church, God is working to make you better and stronger. So whatever the difficulty is you're facing that people have loaded upon you, look, no matter how unfair it is or how critical it is, you look for the one nugget you can take out of that vat that barrel of criticism, that barrel of, of disruption in your life, take that one nugget and say, okay, I can learn this. This is a nugget of truth the Lord has for me. This is what I'm going to learn. And as you develop that attitude of seeking the best of what the Lord has for you in difficult days, you'll get better. Either that or you'll become a bitter person and you become angry with the people of God and you'll become less useful to God himself. As you go through these things in the crucible, he wants to make you better and more useful for him. Well, it's scary. It's difficult. The church is not a social club. You've probably figured that out already. It's not a social club. It's meant to be useful to the Lord to make and baptize and teach disciples of Jesus Christ, Matthew 28. That's the purpose. Make and baptize and teach disciples to live for him so he can glorify himself through the local church. There was a young man I knew in previous days named Bill. He was in our previous church. There was nothing really attractive about Bill. This is a real person in a real church that I was involved with, but I'll never forget Bill. Of all the people I've worked with in the past, Bill stands out of my mind. Women didn't like Bill, and men didn't respect Bill. 
Bill wasn't intelligent. He, he, he wasn't handsome. He wasn't bright. He was socially awkward. It was very difficult to have a conversation with Bill. And at the time I encountered Bill in this church, I was, my wife and I were leading a small group, a growth group, or you might call it a, a discipleship group, group where we were uh, going through the scriptures and teaching one another and, and trying to do the one another's of the scripture that I just talked about. And I kept running into Bill in this big church. And I thought, I think I should ask Bill to be a part of our, our group. He was single. And then I thought, you know, I don't want to invite Bill into the group. I like our group. And Bill, you know, there's, there's like 50 men I'd rather talk to than Bill. But then I felt convicted. That was a really bad attitude. I felt convicted that the Lord was saying to me, in, in effect, I don't like that. I love Bill. He's one of my children. He's mine. And you need to work with Bill. I'm not saying he talked to me that way, but I had that sense in my heart that this is what I should do. So I invited Bill into our, in our group, and we were working with Bill, and I, I got to know him and heard his story and, and uh, was patient with him, and our people became attached to him and, and came to have great affection for Bill. Well, over several months, we worked with him in this way, and I enjoyed him, actually. Then he disappeared from our group. He wouldn't answer my phone calls. Uh, he, he wouldn't respond to me when I would email him or reach out to him in any way. I knew he worked at the local grocery store bagging groceries, so I went there to talk to him, and he refused to talk to me. And I just could not figure out why Bill became just this cold person to me. I had not done anything wrong that I could discern. I don't know if anybody hurt him in our group, but he just disappeared, and I was so troubled by it. I went to a, a, a couple of the key leaders of the church, and I said, have you seen Bill around? Bill won't talk to me. He won't return my calls. He won't respond to me at all. He's just disappeared from our group, and I don't understand what's happened to him. Does, do either of you men know? Well, both of these men began laughing. And I said, why are you laughing? They said, oh, yeah, I, I know Bill. I remember Bill. I said, what? What happened to Bill? And then they related to me an account that uh, uh, after the sermon at this worship service, Bill walked up with his Bible, and he was asking questions of the preacher, opening his Bible and asking about texts and what they meant. And he was standing next to the second man. So there are three of them, these two men, one the preacher, the other man, and the leader of the church, and then Bill. And as Bill talked and he opened the scriptures, a piece of paper flew out of his Bible. Something flew out of his Bible that was embarrassing to Bill. It was embarrassing to him and, and devastating in many ways. It doesn't matter what it was. But one of the men picked up the paper, looked at it, handed it back to him, and snickered at him. And these two men, the preacher and the other man, walked to the back, and they laughed, and they laughed. And this was a story that was related to me about Bill. And I said, oh, you laughed Bill out of the church. That's why he doesn't communicate with me anymore. And they didn't have any problem with what they did to Bill. Now, these were men, these two men were in many ways brilliant men. They were much higher on the status in the church than Bill ever was. Bill was not highly regarded or respected, as I said. But they laughed them out of the church. And then as I challenged them for what they did, they said, you know, Jesus laughed. Jesus made fun of Pharisees. Bill was a Pharisee. Bill pretended to be something he was not. He's a fraud. He's a hypocrite. The Pharisees, that's, that's just how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees. And my argument was Bill wasn't a Pharisee. Bill had nothing to offer. Bill had very little to offer this church. He has very little, but he's, he's God's child. And what you did is you took a man who was struggling in his life and you didn't help him. You laughed him out of the church. You're the Pharisees. You guys are wrong. You should, should never have done that. And now I, I don't know what to do to get Bill to talk to me, to, to come back. 
Well, these, these two men never repented. They thought I was completely off in my discernment of the matter. And to this day, I get upset when I think about it. But see, what they were doing is they were not exercising body life in a way that would honor Christ. Uh, sure, Bill had a problem. But actually, the Pharisees were the men who laughed him out of the church. They were the, one with the, power, the ones with the power. They were the ones who knew the word. They were the ones who were articulate about the scriptures. And they knew they had all kinds of power in the church. And they took a weak man and they destroyed him. Now, I found out about, of course, I, after this occasion, I went to the grocery store again. I said, Bill, please talk to me. Come on, can we get breakfast? Can we go have coffee? Can we just, maybe after your shift is done, he goes, I can't. I can't. I'm, I can't do it. So after repeated attempts to reach Bill, I, I, I kind of backed off because he didn't want that. Well, I found out later he, he had cancer and he died. He got sick with cancer and he didn't go to the doctor and he was spitting up blood and he, he then subsequently died. I went to the wake after I found this out and talked to his sister and didn't get a warm reception at all. She was very cold toward me. She didn't know anything about me, but she knew something of the church. It's devastating. Now, that's the contrast of what body life should not be like. The wounding that you receive sometimes when you practice body life can be scary, it can be hurtful, and the tendency is to want to back off. But don't back off. Don't back off as you do these things because that doesn't honor Christ. Christ is trying to work in you to refine you just as he's trying to refine those others in the church. That's body life. That's how we help one another. We're going to be looking at two sections in Hebrews 5 and 6. Uh, so you might want to turn there. Now, Hebrews, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. It might have been written by Apollos or perhaps Barnabas. Uh, but the letter to the Hebrews, it's written in, uh, so that we don't know who it is that wrote it, but it's written to people who are Jewish, who are believers in Jesus as Messiah. The purpose of Hebrews is to exalt Jesus Christ and it's a letter of warning to fall, about falling away. It's a letter of warning. It's a letter of exaltation of the personhood and the Godhead, uh, the godliness of Jesus Christ, the member of the Trinity, the logos of the Trinity. Before we get into the specifics of the text, let me pray. Father, thank you for this place. Your mercies are new every morning. We thank you for the rain. We thank you for the the trees and the lake, you all created it without any horrible effort on your part. It was easy for you, and we're enjoying it. Thank you for that. Thank you for each person here, for their life, for their desire to be a part of this church. I pray that uh, you would guard my mouth. Help me to honor you. Help us to listen carefully and thoughtfully as we deal with the text in Hebrews 5 and 6. Amen. Hebrews 5, we're going to go from Hebrews 5.11 through uh, chapter 6, verse 2, and then we're going to skip down to 9 uh, through 12. So we're starting at Hebrews 5, verse 11. I'll just read this through 6.2. The writer says, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. 
Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And skipping down to verses 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. All right. When the writer of Hebrews says in verse 11, about this we have much to say, what is the about this part? What is it that he has much to say about? He has much to say about what it means to uh, be a follower of Jesus and about what, who Jesus is and what he's about. He has much to say to them, but they're, they're not listening very well. It's hard to explain to them. The writer of Hebrews is a little frustrated because he says they're dull of hearing. They're dull of hearing. I chased this around in the Bible. I read some commentators, and I had certain impressions about what dull of hearing means. And I thought I had it right, but I wanted to check with some uh, commentators to see if I, in fact, was accurate in my understanding of it. Now, one commentator said, this is a gentle rebuke from the writer, uh, saying that these people are hard to teach. It's a gentle rebuke. And I thought, I'm not sure that's right. Because dull of hearing in the original language means that the writer of Hebrews is saying that these people are stupid. Oh, that's not very nice. He's saying they're stupid. They're like rocks. They're hard. They're lazy. They're stupid. They're dull. He's writing this to people who are believers in Jesus. Now, put that in your theological pipe and smoke it, as they say. He's very aggressive. This is not a gentle rebuke. He's being very hard on his review of their spiritual life. And you can, you can put these words through the grid of your own experience and your own work in the local church. Are you dull and lazy and stupid? Now let's see if this is truly, as this commentator said, a gentle rebuke. If you walked up to me, if you knew me, and you said, you know, Gordon, I, I, um, I think you're dull. I think you're lazy. And you're not only that, you're stupid. And it, the word implies also that uh, I don't even know if you're a believer in Jesus. You're so stupid and dull that I don't even know if you're a Christian. That's not a gentle rebuke. That's a harsh, in-your-face saying, you know, get it together, brother or sister. Get it together. I'm trying to help. I'm trying to... Now, that's not an excuse to be mean. I'm not talking about being mean. But the Spirit of God inspired this writer to say these things to a group of people in the church. Is he saying that to me? Is he saying this to you? The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It should cut you to realize what you are in the eyes of God and how you're doing. You're dull of hearing. For what? For why? Why is he saying this? For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. By this time you ought to be teachers. And it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you ought to have a particular ability to speak before a large gathering, but in your interactions with, with one another, you ought to be able to teach one another what the Word says, sharpen one another, and help one another discern properly the Word of God and what it says whether in individual groups or individual one-on-one -on -one discussions or even in a group of this size or beyond. 
you ought to be able to be teachers by this point because you've known the Lord or you claim to know the Lord for a long time, but what are you doing? My question to you is, are you practicing body life? Are you doing what the scripture calls us to do? Those 33 things I just talked about right out of the word, right out of the word. I didn't even get to the list of things that the Lord says you should never do in the local church. We're going to have to digest that perhaps on your own. By this time, you ought to be teachers, you need, but you need someone to teach you again, again, not just the first time, but again. I'm doing this again, he says, for you. The basic principles of the oracles of God, the basic principles of what God is about and who he is. He's criticizing them for being what he would say, you're settled in this. This is how you are. It's not good. This is how you are, and you have no passion or intensity about the Lord and your relationship with him. This is a settled state of being for you. Get a grip on what you're supposed to be doing in the local church, in the Lord's church. You're not getting it. You can evaluate for yourself whether you are treating God as some kind of a, a secondary character in your life. If you read Malachi, for example, the Lord is very unhappy with his people because they're treating him like a second-class citizen. They're being casual in their worship. They're offering flawed sacrifices. He says, why don't you give that to your governor? Why don't you give that to somebody else and see if they would like it? A regular human being, but I'm the God of the universe and you're giving me your second or your fifth, so you don't even care. God is a God of holiness and righteousness and he's patient with us, but he has certain expectations he wants from us in his love for us. Romans 2, 4 says it's the forbearance of God that drives you to repentance. The forbearance of God or the patience of God drives you to repentance. Once you look at who you are compared to who he is and what he's done for you, and you realize how patient he's been with you and with me, it should drive you to say, I, I don't want to be this way anymore. I want to be more for him. I want to do more for him in the power of his spirit in my life. Not because I'm going to grind it out by my own energy, but because the spirit of God lives in me and I'm going to connect with him in a way that is abiding, abiding and remaining. So I'm not just a stick, but I'm a vine. I'm a, a branch in the body of Christ. I'm a branch in the tree, in the vine. Another metaphor of the life. He says you need milk, continuing again with uh, Hebrews 5, the second half of verse 12. He says, you need milk, not solid food. Why would you need milk? Because you're a baby. You're a spiritual baby if you just survive on milk. You can't give a baby pizza. He's saying, I know who you are. I know what you are. I need you to grow up. I need you to do more by being more than you are. I expect you to do more than you do, but first you need to become more than you are. I need you, God wants you to do more than you do, but first become more than you are. So he's primary in your life, not secondary. You know, after I do this, I'll get to God. I'll think about God. I'll get into his word. I'll, I'll participate in worship. I'll serve God's people. I'll, I'll do body life. Maybe I'll do that later after I'm done with my other stuff that I'd rather do. Remember, it's the forbearance of God that drives you to repentance, to an intense relationship with him. That's what the writer of Hebrews is after here. Verse 13. Everyone, that's everyone, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Why is he unskilled in the, wor in the word of, of righteousness? Well, because he's a baby. He doesn't understand these things because he hasn't made it a part of his life of intensity, of focus, even of mild focus. He's just casually walking through life. The writer says, this is not good. You're like a child. 
Solid food, verse 14, but solid food, the difficult things of understanding of the Lord, the difficult things that are hard for us to digest because we're mere human beings, we're mere men and women and boys and girls here. They're hard to understand. It takes the mind of Christ to reveal to us what they are and to help us to understand the deeper things of God. Solid food like that is for mature believers, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil, constant practice, constant practice. Do you ever get any good at anything without constant practice? Some of you must like sports. I'm sure you like sports, some of you, or play sports, or do different things that you're good at. How did you get good at them? You don't get good at them unless you constantly practice. It's a matter of choice. You each have a choice. I have a choice, we each have a choice. What am I gonna devote myself to? Am I gonna devote myself to football or baseball or idolize this person in my life and think only of that person or idolize, you fill in the blank of what's most important to you. You constantly practice that thing and you get really good at it. The writer of Hebrews is saying, look, constantly practice being close to God. Constantly practice being a part of the body and doing body life together. Don't treat it casually. Give that to your governor. Give that to your beloved prime minister. See how he likes it. I know. I understand. There's something that I call the ministry maturity timeline. Maybe you're familiar with this and maybe it's a review for you or maybe it's new but I'll just briefly go through it. The ministry maturity timeline. Uh, uh, it's a, a vertical axis and a horizontal axis. So the ministry maturity timeline. The maturity axis is how mature you are in Christ. And up there in eternity is the per perfection of Jesus. You'll never get there perfectly, but you can get in human terms pretty good, pretty mature. Jesus is the perfect standard, of course. That's the that's the maturity uh, timeline. This, this horizontal axis is how long you've known the, the Lord, how long you've known him. Maybe you've known him for 30 years. Maybe you're new in Christ. Maybe you've known him for six months. I'm talking about a personal relationship with him where you, you received him as Lord and Savior. Now, the, 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 the picture should be that as you walk over time on the horizontal axis over time, you should have a, a movement in your life that's more mature, that's more Christ-like. Now, there are dips. There are perhaps bad years even, or bad months, or, or times when you're just not really living right before God. I understand, we're just human beings, we're all just human beings. But over time, you ought to become more and more mature and more useful to Him. If you don't do that, if you're walking with Christ and you've been a Christian for a while, a long time, and you're not doing body life, you know what you become like in the picture of the, the body, the metaphor of the body? You become like an ingrown toenail in the church. You know how, how maybe you, some of you have ingrown toenails. That hurts, does it not? You've never had that. Okay. <laughs> well, take my word for it. I've had one in my past. It hurts. And you know what? You don't want to be that way in the church. You don't want to be an ingrown toenail in the church or a boil or whatever it might be. If you don't serve the Lord, if you don't live in a way that pleases Him, you're going to become less mature. You're going to become stone cold like a rock dull of hearing, useless in the body of Christ. It's by constant practice, distinguishing good from evil, that we become what we ought to be in God's eyes, and he likes it. It's not easy, but he likes it. He's pleased with that in us. Therefore, verse 1 of chapter 6, because of these things he said previously, therefore, 
Why don't, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Doesn't, he doesn't mean deny it. He means you've got the foundation laid in Christ. You know who he is. You know what that's about. You know about the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord. You know what it means. You know what you're supposed to do. Don't, again, force your leaders to lay that foundation again and again and again. How frustrating that is to be forced as a leader in the church to lay a foundation again of understanding for those who should know better. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Don't make others lay that foundation again. You be the one who's laying that foundation for others. You be the one who's practicing body life. Verse 2 of chapter 6. Not laying again a foundation and of instruction about washings or about the laying on of hands or the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. These are things that are understood fairly quickly and early in the Christian life. We're going to skip down. The rest of that uh, section, these next several verses, talk about the danger of falling away. The danger of falling away. That's another whole sermon we, you could get into. I want to uh, uh, focus, though, beginning in verse 9. In verse 9. And he says, Though we speak of you in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. We feel sure of better things. Now, he just said earlier that they're lazy, stupid, and dull. They are a settled state of being that's really negative. But he says, we speak in this way, I'm speaking in this way to you, but in your case, beloved, he loves them. He doesn't hate them, he loves them. In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things for you, things that belong to salvation. Now it's interesting, how could he be so critical in the earlier section of chapter five, so directly critical about their walk with the Lord, and then here he says, yeah, though I'm I'm talking this way to you, um, yet in your case, uh, we feel sure of better things. Now, in a group of this size, I don't know, maybe there's 50 or 70 people here, no doubt, There's people who really do know Christ, and there's people who don't. There's people who know him and people who don't, people who don't get it. For those of us who get it, for those of us who understand what he's teaching here, for those people that he's writing to, he says, in your case, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Well, what's he talking about? What belongs to salvation? Well, body life things, things that I just read to you, those 33 uh, things that are supposed to accompany life in the body of Christ things that belong to salvation. Verse 10, God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. Some of you still do this and do this. I want to encourage you to keep doing that in a greater and greater way. And maybe uh, maybe a bit of a rebuke for those who are just kind of throwing God a bone every Sunday. Maybe you're spending an hour with him and you're th- dealing with him in, in a very casual way. Why don't you give that to your boss at work or give that to somebody else, but don't give that to God. He's not so unjust as to overlook your work. That's irony. Of course God is not unjust. He's perfectly just. He says God is not so unjust as to overlook your work. He takes notes. He knows what you've done. He knows it all. He watches your good work. My wife and I left a a, a big church a while ago And it was under very difficult circumstances. We were there for 19 years. 19 years we were there. I served in various roles in the church, as did she. We led a growth group for 15 or 16 years, year after year, month after month, straight through, leading people, trying to shepherd them. And um, after we left, we had very few of those relationships in our lives. 
I don't know how many hundreds of people we had in our growth groups over those 15 or 18 years. We had lots of them. But when we left the church, a lot of those people, I don't know, it seems like we died. We didn't leave badly. There were things that happened that were sad and unfortunate in the, in the church's life and culture. But we were both hurting very badly. And I remember my wife, Joyce, sitting at the kitchen table saying, you know, all that, all that work we did, all those people we, we spent hours and hours working with, all the times we sacrificed when our kids were babies, all that, I don't know if it was really worth a thing. I don't know if we made a difference in anybody's life. Not even one. She was deeply discouraged, as was I. But I remember we talked through it. And um, you know what? As much as I could say, uh, one thing happened that I didn't even need to say a word. God is not so unjust. He does not overlook your work. Not long, or after, not long after that conversation my wife and I had, we were at another church. We were visiting this church, and uh, a woman walked up to Joyce and said, uh, I don't think you remember me. And Joyce said, you know, I, I don't. And she said, you know, uh, 20 years ago, or a long time ago, I was pregnant, expecting a baby. I was, you might recall, I, I was unwed. I, I was on my own. I was alone. But I was expecting this baby. And Joyce, what you did is you got together a bunch of women and you, you had a baby shower for me and for my unborn child. And I remember that. And I just saw you, she said uh, to Joyce, I just saw you. I had to come up and talk to you. And I want, to meet, I want you to meet the daughter that I gave birth to. And here this young woman walked up 19, 20 years old, whatever she was. And she said, you know, I never thanked you adequately for doing that for me. But I remember what you did for me and encouraged me so much as I was on my own and I was going to have this child. Now, see, what that is, is that, is that by coincidence that we were visiting this church and this woman said to my wife, I remember. It's as though God said, okay, here, let me give you a little glimpse of something I remember, and I'm going to use this person to remind you of what you did. Joyce didn't even remember doing this. But he sometimes says, okay, I know you're discouraged. Here's, here's a little glimpse of my memory of your good work. God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his sake, not for yourself, but for his reputation, for his glory. You've done it for him, not for you. If you start thinking that you're going to do stuff because it's good for you, boy, you're going to get tired fast. And it's going to wear out fast. You don't do it for anybody but him because you love him and you want to serve him. You've got to keep that as your motivator. You do that for his sake in serving the saints as you still do consistently do it over time. In verse 11, we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. The same earnestness, intensity, not casual. Give that to your governor, remember from Malachi. Give that stuff to your governor, see if he likes it. He's urging them, exhorting them to be earnest in the faith. And he's doing that for us, telling us that's what we need to be. Now, you don't have to do this. You don't have to be this way. It's easy to be sluggish and lazy and unwilling to grow. It's hard to grow. It's hard to be really useful in the Lord's work, but it's worth it. It's worth it to be useful to him. We desire each one, not as a group, but each one, each one, even listening to this. As he says, each one we desire to have the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. The hope is what? Uh, uh, biblical hope means the hope, of course, is the return of Christ. 
and that we'll be a part of his kingdom, that we'll, we're a part of it. The hope is the return of Christ. Not the, I hope my team wins the game, but the certain expectation that it's going to happen. There's no doubt that it's going to happen until the end, until we are taken out or, we, or the Lord returns, until the end. And what's the result of this commitment in verse 12? So that you may not be sluggish. You may not be sluggish. You know what's interesting? That word sluggish in the original language, that's the same word that is used in uh, verses, uh, verse uh, 11 of chapter 5. Lazy, dull, stupid, dull as a rock, dumb, foolish. Don't be like that. He uses that same word again. Don't be like that. Don't be sluggish. He, re he refers back in the same word as a reminder, as an emphasis. But imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Look at people in your life who know the Lord that you admire for their faith. And watch them and see how they respond to things and, and watch how they live. This is the biblical example of discipleship. Uh, uh, Paul became an example to Timothy and Titus, for example. Uh, this is the Christian life. You look at people who are beyond you spiritually and you want to emulate their faith in their life. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The promises of God for each of us who know him. You're looking to inherit that and learn how to live this life by doing these things that he's talking about. Not in your flesh, not in your own strength, but it's a fruit that comes out of the natural relationship you have with Christ. That's why Christ said, abide in me. Abide, remain, stay. I'm the one who gives you strength. That's the point. So, let me give you some closing thoughts on how to actually perhaps be a blessing in this church, in this local church. Don't be a consumer of the church. Don't just hang out and then be a, a connoisseur. Well, I didn't like that. Mm, I like that. That was a good song. I don't appreciate that person singing. I, I don't like the way that person looks. I, I don't think I appreciate whatever that and blah, 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 blah. Don't do that. That's very, very hurtful, very unhealthy. Offer yourself. Offer yourself in service to the church. I'm sure there's all kinds of things you can do here to bless this body and the broader community in Smith's Falls. Offer yourself in body life. Look at the list of body life. Do, do this and do that and see how well you're doing. Offer yourself to be known and to know. To know and to be known by others. To know others and to be known by them. No clicks. Let people in like Bill in my life. I wasn't at first excited about Bill and the Lord in, in essence rebuked me for my attitude. And I got to know Bill and, and the rest you know. Let people in. Demonstrate the love for Christ. God remembers your work even if people forget. Or how about even when people forget? God remembers. He knows every detail, everything. He knows it all. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of Christ. Do it all for the glory of Christ. Let me uh, read um, Colossians uh, 3. Uh, 23 and 24, I think it is. Whatever you do, do you work heartily for the Lord, uh, not for men, but for him, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve. You don't do it for anybody else. As I've tried to emphasize, you do it for somebody else, it's not going to last. But do it in the power of your relationship with God because you feed that relationship and you allow him to fill you. And then out of it comes service and glory for him. And lastly... You remember the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17? 
Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's in deep, deep trouble and, and sorrow in his heart. He's troubled. He's going to the cross. He's getting ready to go, and he's praying for the saints. Now listen to this. I want you to pay close attention to the words here because he's praying for those who are followers of his, but included in the prayer is you and me, individually, each of you who knows Christ. Listen to how he says it. He's praying. He's praying for them, and he says, um, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me in the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. I set myself apart, he says, that they also may be sanctified, purified in truth. Verse 20. I do not, this is the key verse, I do not ask for these only, but for also for those who will believe in me through their word. When he was in that prayer, he was praying for each of us because through the extension of life since these days, people taught others about the faith. They told others about the faith. And whoever led you to Christ is in that long line of descendants of those who came to Christ and taught others. So when he's praying for his disciples right there, he's also including those to come. That's us. I do not ask for these only, these 12, these 11, because Judas was gone. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That's future. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The purpose is for the glory of the Lord. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the glory of the Lord. And the Lord likes it when we demonstrate body life to, with one another and for one another under the power of his spirit, which indwells every believer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this beautiful day. I pray, Lord, that the principles of your word will go forth in each heart here with power and that it may be a new day for those who are rather lethargic in their walk with you. Perhaps there's someone here who doesn't really know you as Savior and Lord. I pray that they would speak uh, with Lucas afterwards or one of the other leaders or even me about how to have a relationship with you that is one rooted in close power, salvation, and life. I pray, Lord, that you would take the worship service and uh, help us to live for you each day this week, whatever you give us, Lord, uh, knowing that we can endure and persevere in joy regardless of what happens and what comes. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege, privilege it is to know you through your great Son. And I pray we would walk away encouraged, living for you anew as we celebrate our life with you through Christ. Amen.